Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a visitor with us this morning. If you're a visitor this morning and you've got questions, if you're a visitor this morning and you've got something that you need, please don't hesitate just to tap someone on the shoulder, pull someone aside, pull me aside. There's lots of people here that would love to make you feel welcome and to answer any questions you might have about where things are, about why we do what we do, about what our liturgy looks like. We're just glad that you're here joining us this morning. As some of you know, we're in a series on the Gospel of Mark that will hopefully, Lord willing, take us up through Easter here on Sunday mornings. And Mark is a book that gives us an account of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do in this world. And one of the things that you'll notice as you study the book of Mark or any gospel is that Jesus has a profound impact on people. He has a profound impact on people. Everywhere he went, Jesus brought with him a certain amount of disruption or cognitive dissonance. We see in the gospels that there are some people that engage with Jesus and they welcome him. They wanted to be around him. They were changed by having a relationship with him. We also see others who were unsure about Jesus. We see those who looked on him with suspicion. We even see those this morning who were angry at his grace and at his offer of forgiveness. In the gospel accounts, Jesus really is a disruptive figure. Someone who makes the claims that he made has to be disruptive. Because he comes and he forces us to make a decision about who he is. There's really no gray area when it comes to Jesus. You either believe in what he said or you reject what he said. He doesn't leave a lot of room for the middle option. And this morning we'll be looking at a story that happens early on in the ministry of Jesus. People are still feeling out exactly who Jesus is and they're not quite sure about him and his mission. And our passage today highlights one of the most important aspects of what Jesus came to do. He came to bring health. He came to bring spiritual health and healing to broken people. To see what I mean, let's read Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed Jesus. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating with, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at your word, that you would open it, that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to receive what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this morning that we would see the beauty of Jesus And that as we see his beauty, we would be set free from the inside out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you watch TED Talks. TED Talks. TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. 
and there are TED conferences that are held throughout the year in different locations across the world. And I'm pretty sure that most of you have been exposed to these 15 to 20 minute video presentations where experts come and they address certain topics of interest and relevance. They're really interesting. Their tagline at TED is ideas worth spreading. And anytime I've got some extra time, I always enjoy surfing over to the TED website and checking out what kind of interesting videos they've recently added. It's kind of a spiral that I'll get into, a vortex that I'll be sucked into and look up in an hour, hour and a half has passed and I've been watching these TED videos. And on the site this past week, I saw the list of the most popular TED talks of all time. And one of the most popular TED talks of all time was given in 2010 by a professor in social work at the University of Houston named Brene Brown. You may have heard of Brene Brown before because of her TED lecture on shame and vulnerability. This is the fourth most watched TED lecture in the history of TED. And you may have run across some of her writings too. Uh, She has written two books that have become really popular over the past few years, Daring Greatly and Rising Strong. And in both of these books and in her popular TED Talk, she talks about the power of shame in our lives. And it's not a topic that we talk about very often. But as you go to the TED site, you realize that it must be pretty significant to people since it's the fourth most viewed TED Talk in TED's history. It currently has over 37 million views And it's because she's hitting on a popular chord in our culture when she talks about the effects of shame in our lives. Definitions are really important when it comes to understanding certain words. And I found in my own life that I never really had a good definition for what shame actually is. I often lump guilt and shame together as meaning the same thing, but it's eye-opening when you begin to understand the real definition of each of these terms. I wonder if given the chance this morning how you would define the difference between shame and guilt. How you would define those two words. Well, shame and guilt are cousins in a sense, but they're different. Guilt is what we feel when we've done something wrong. You lie on an expense report, or you say something mean to a friend or a spouse, or you let your anger get the better of you with your kids, often what you feel after that is guilt. Guilt is violating a standard, maybe a personal standard or a standard from God's word, and it's pretty objective. You feel guilt when you've done something wrong. Shame, on the other hand, is feeling that I am what's wrong. It's the feeling of personal unworthiness and self-loathing after you've done something wrong. I like how Brene Brown puts it in her TED Talk. She says this, Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I did something bad. If you did something that was hurtful to me, guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. It's subtle, but the difference between guilt and shame is important, and it's important to understand what each is because they're both something we struggle with all of the time. They're also very biblical terms, shame and guilt. We see the concept of guilt and shame, even the word shame, making its first appearance in the scriptures in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. 
And the reality of guilt and the feeling of shame has rippled throughout history and touched every person who's walked this earth. It's why most everyone in this room is at one point or another throughout a normal day deeply insecure. It's why we constantly struggle with self-doubt being comfortable in our own skin. Guilt and shame is why we wonder if change is really possible. Surely other people might be able to change, but not me. After all the mistakes I've made, the words that I wish I could take back, the missteps, the regrets. It's why we struggle with actually believing that people could like us. That people would want to be around us, that people enjoy us. It's because of guilt and shame that we struggle with believing that God could ever use us. Maybe he uses others, but there's no way that God could use someone like me, someone so messed up, someone who's so fearful, someone who feels so incompetent. God may tolerate me, but he doesn't really like me. He doesn't really enjoy me. It's because of shame and guilt that we have a hard time liking ourselves. It's why we feel so uncomfortable in our own skin. It's why we're often our own worst critic. We will say things to ourselves. We talk to ourselves in ways that we'd never talk to another person. At their core, guilt and shame are really a condition of the soul. They're issues of the heart. We feel guilty and rightfully so because we've done wrong things. And we feel shame because we believe that we're unworthy of love and acceptance. And guilt and shame are sicknesses in our hearts and souls that have the potential to bring death and to rob life and health from our souls. And some of you will know that guilt and shame have a cyclical nature where we get caught in its vortex and and find it hard to get out. We do things we wish we hadn't done and then we feel regret and shame over those things that we've done, which leads us to re-engage in the actions that made us feel shame and guilt in the first place. And it's a never-ending spiral. And the question for us this morning is, who can stop the cycle that we experience in our lives over and over? We should know by now that we can't pull ourselves out of this cycle with our own power. It takes someone outside of ourselves. It takes a foreign power. It takes grace, what the Bible says. It takes the gospel to free us from guilt and shame. The good news we read about this morning in our passage is that Jesus came to heal our souls and to set us free from guilt and shame. Jesus is the one who can break the destructive power of shame in our life, and he offers us forgiveness and takes away our guilt. To understand what I mean, it's first important to understand exactly who Levi is in our passage. At the beginning of our passage, Jesus is walking and he's walking alongside the Sea of Galilee again. And we see that he's back at teaching and he's drawing large crowds to himself by what he's teaching. And we see in verse 14 that as he's walking along ministering to people, he passes by Levi, who's sitting at his tax booth collecting taxes. See, Levi was stationed at the tax booth that people would have encountered when they entered or left Capernaum. Like a toll road, people had to pay taxes every time they came into this territory, every time they came into Capernaum, and Levi was the one who was responsible for collecting those taxes from travelers. And it's important to know, some of you will know this, that tax collectors in that day and age were completely despised, as you might imagine. 
don't hear many of our kids say they want to grow up to be an IRS agent today. And they definitely did not want to be one back then. Because they were socially and culturally and politically and spiritually on the outside. They were despised because tax collectors like Levi were Jewish men, we know that by his name, who had betrayed their own people, the Jewish people, to work for the Romans to line their own pockets. It was a lucrative position that often was obtained by the highest bidder. And one of the attractive things about collecting taxes for Rome in that day and age is that you are encouraged to skim off the top. In fact, that's how you made your living as a tax collector. Let's say Rome wanted to collect a 15% tax on everyone's earnings. Well, a tax collector would come along and with the power of the Roman government behind him could charge people 25%. Send 15% to the government, fill his quota, and then pocket whatever is left for himself. And he could do all this, like I said, with the backing and the authority of the colonial power, which was Rome. Basically, tax collectors were enriching themselves at the expense of their countrymen. They were betraying their own people for their private interests. And because of this, they were despised. They would have been treated like pieces of dirt. It would have been hard to find someone more hated in that day, in that age, in that community. In fact, tax collectors were often excommunicated from the synagogue. They weren't allowed to come to worship. They were treated as unclean. They weren't not allowed to give testimony in the Jewish courts of law. Their disgrace normally also extended to their families. A sense of dirtiness rubbed off on everyone they touched. And it's also possible, if you stop and think about it, if not probable, that Levi had extorted money from Jesus before. I mean, that he'd taken advantage of Jesus as he passed in and out of Capernaum through his life. Levi is somebody that did that to Christ. And this is who Levi was. He was used to being despised. He was guilty and he knew it. He kind of got used to it. He was full of shame and he learned to live with it. And it's this person in Mark chapter 2 that we see Jesus pursue who Jesus calls, not because of his worthiness, definitely not because of his reputation or his past actions or the fact that he's gotten his life together. No, Jesus is walking this road into Capernaum and he gravitates towards Levi. And this interaction would have been compelling to Levi. I mean, Jesus treats Levi like a human being here. He treats him with dignity. He he takes him seriously. This might have been the first time in years that someone treated Levi like a human being. And this call from Jesus is unlike anything that Levi had ever experienced, or at least experienced in a long time. Jesus wanted to be with Levi, to care for him, to be around him, to teach him. And so Jesus comes and he meets Levi right where he is and all of his guilt and all of his shame. We also see from this passage that Jesus doesn't leave Levi where he is. He wants to take him somewhere. He wants to show him what it means to follow him. And the love that Levi received from Jesus actually changed his life. So much so that he left his former life of deceit and immediately he begins to follow Jesus. And now we've seen... Now that we've seen who Jesus comes for, I want to turn just for a minute and take a look at what Jesus does in this passage. 
After calling this despised tax collector, we see Jesus welcome an invitation to be a guest at his home, at a party in Levi's home. And since Levi would have been despised by normal, polite society, you can imagine the kind of people that Levi would have at this party. I mean, the text indicates in verse 15 that it was a group of many tax collectors and sinners. So we see Jesus and his disciples in the home of Levi, along with the group of people who are politically, socially, culturally, and spiritually suspect. What are they doing? Well, they're eating together. And that feels a bit mundane and normal to us, maybe something that we gloss over in our own culture. After all, everyone eats and we normally do it in our culture without giving it much thought. It's so common, we don't normally stop to think how meaningful it is. We know where our next meal is coming from. This culture oftentimes did not. It's one of the common denominators that everyone shares, everyone eats. I mean, how much of our personal budgets uh, take up our food? You know, it takes a lot of money to feed a person, but we normally don't think about it. And while it feels insignificant to us, the Bible places a lot of importance on eating. It's interesting that Jesus, I want you to get this, that Jesus is described with three important phrases on the pages of the Gospels. We see him say these things about himself, okay? He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's amazing that it's one of the main descriptors for Jesus in the Gospels that he came eating and drinking. The fact that he ate and drank with all kinds of people. Meals were Jesus' method. They were his strategy for getting his message out to the world. In order to share the good news of forgiveness and grace, Jesus doesn't write a book. He doesn't set up a teaching ministry in a prominent synagogue with lots of listeners and followers. He eats with people in their home on a regular basis. Meals are the method for Jesus. It's amazing if you think about it, that the gospel spread mainly through eating, through table fellowship. I love how Tim Chester puts it in his book, A Meal with Jesus, and The quote's printed for you at the front of your bulletin when he says this. Jesus was a party animal. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Jesus was so committed to this particular mission strategy of extending his word to people that one theologian said that in the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal at a meal, or coming from a meal. He literally eats his way through the Gospels. As Jesus gathers with people to eat, we see him through the pages of Scripture eating with all kinds of people. His disciples, he, see, he eats at time with Pharisees and religious leaders. He eats at other times with sinners and tax collectors. And by eating with people, Jesus is always communicating, implicitly saying this, I want to be with you. I want to share a meal with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to hear about your life and I want to share mine with you. 
These meals were enacted grace, enacted community, enacted mission. He's communicating something by eating in who he eats with. Look, in the ancient Near East, meals oftentimes operated like boundary markers. Who you ate with communicated who you belonged to. We've all felt this in the middle school cafeteria at one point in our life or another. You know, you leave the line and you're just wondering, who am I going to sit with? Because it's going to indicate that I'm safe and that I belong with somebody. Well, times have not changed. That's the way it was back in the ancient Near East too. Who you ate with communicated who you belonged to, who you were connected to. Eating meals with certain people demonstrated who you believed was on the inside and who was on the outside. One biblical historian said it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the culture of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Meal times were far more than an occasion for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating with another person became a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Look, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew this. That's why verse 16 is in our passage. And now that we know this, verse 16 makes a lot more sense. The scribes and religious leaders um, were there and they witnessed Jesus. And it's important to know that the scribes were the religious hotshots of the day. They were academics and scholars. The guys who would settle religious and scriptural disputes. And this is the first time that we see the Pharisees show up on the pages of Mark. And they were just regular church folks. Oftentimes when we think of the Pharisees, we think of uh, figures that walk around in dark cloaks and nobody likes them. But that's not really what the folks in the first century would have thought of Pharisees. The Jewish people would have looked up to Pharisees. They would have admired them for their devotion and their diligence. The Pharisees set boundary markers of who was inside and who was on the outside. And when it comes to the ministry of Jesus it seems like the Pharisees were always angry. I mean, Jesus could not please them. Matthew 11, in Matthew 11, Jesus says as much when he says this. He says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he had a demon. But then I come, the son of man, comes eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees could never be made happy. And here's Jesus sitting with the sleazy, uniting himself by table fellowship to the enemies of God's people, and it made the religious of the day upset. Jesus is coming and he's turning the system upside down. In the Pharisees' view, they viewed uncleanliness as contagious. And Jesus is catching the disease in this room with all these less than reputable people. How dare he be there with them? The Pharisees think that Jesus is receiving their sin and making himself unclean by associating with these folks. But Jesus is coming, and throughout the pages of the Gospels, he's establishing a new kingdom with new rules. Instead of catching sinners' uncleanness, Jesus' cleanliness and holiness was the thing that was contagious. Grace is contagious holiness, and Jesus is infecting the world with his grace through his life and through his ministry. 
And Jesus in verse 17 tells the scribes and Pharisees that only people who know that they can't fulfill righteousness on their own will want to come to the table with Jesus. Only those who know that they're sick are going to want to eat with me, to be identified with me, to be united with me. What we see is that God has a special kind of love for the outcast, for the sinner, for the despised, for those who are full of guilt and shame. In fact, it's these kind of people that Jesus came for. And it's what he's telling these scribes and these Pharisees in verse 17, that the only requirement for a relationship with Jesus is to feel your need, to know that you're sick and to receive his healing. So knowing that Jesus came for the spiritually sick, knowing that he enjoys table fellowship with sinners, understanding that meals were one of the main strategies of Jesus for sharing the good news, I want to ask two questions by way of application this morning. The first question is focused more on us personally, and the second question is focused more on us missionally. But the first question, the personal question that I want to ask us by way of application is, is Jesus sitting at your table? Is Jesus sitting at your table? We see Levi invite Jesus to his table in this passage. And Jesus graciously accepts the invitation. And having Jesus come to his table is the first step towards spiritual health and wholeness, towards forgiveness and grace. It's the first step towards forgiveness from guilt and freedom from debilitating shame. Just like he does with Levi, Jesus meets us in the areas of our lives where we harbor guilt and shame. Those areas of our lives where we want to hide. Those areas where we feel like we failed. Those areas that lead us to believe that we're not worthy of acceptance. We can't escape the reality of guilt and shame in our lives. We try all the time, but we can't. And our passage today reminds us that Jesus wants to sit with us. To bring health to those areas of our life that are affected by guilt and shame. The problem for us is that many times we don't really have a category for what sitting with Jesus would look like. We don't have a category for what health would look like when it comes to our spiritual lives. We know what health looks like physically. We know what it looks like to get in shape through exercise and eating right so that our bodies can perform. We know what health looks like financially. We know what it looks like to save and to spend within our means so that we can enjoy the good things that God gives us and have enough. But when it comes to our spiritual health, we just don't think about it very much. We don't think about the fact that we are embodied souls. I wonder where God wants to bring health in your life this morning. Where does he want to sit with you at? Would you even be able to answer that question? A great way to discern where that's happening is to ask, where are you being disrupted? Where are you being stretched? Where are you being challenged in your life right now? I like how Tim Keller put it when he said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Where are you being challenged? Where are you being uncomfortable? Where are you being stretched? Because health normally follows these things. We know it's true in our physical bodies. We know it's true in our financial health. Why wouldn't it be true when it comes to our spirits and our souls? Maybe God is reordering the way that you think about and engage your sexuality. Maybe God is showing you that anger tends to be out of control in your life and you've hurt lots of people. Maybe you've been convicted recently about how all-consuming work is in your life. 
Look, it's different for everyone, but God wants to bring spiritual health to shameful, guilty people. And he sent Jesus in order to make that happen, to show us how serious he is about it. And Jesus is one who wants to meet you in all of your guilt and shame. He's one who wants to sit at your table. But he's also one who wants to lead you to health, to different ways of behavior that bring freedom and joy to your life. That's the first question. Is Jesus sitting at your table? And the second question by way of application is a little bit more missional. Are others sitting at your table? Very practically, are others sitting at your table? In other words, if table fellowship has been one of the main mission strategies through the history of the church, how well are we engaging in this strategy in our own lives? We've been invited to sit with Jesus, and through our relationship with Him, we've received forgiveness and mercy and grace, and we now get the chance to move out and to show that same love and service to our friends and neighbors. Knowing that Jesus was constantly eating with all kinds of people should shape our behavior. We can get behind this missing strategy, I think. It's an exciting one. At least it tastes good, right? Tim Chester, in another part of his book, A Meal with Jesus, says this. We can make community and mission sound like specialized activities that belong to experts. Some people have a vested interest in doing this because it makes them special or extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can captivate an audience and lead a movement. Some push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians but the Son of Man came eating and drinking. In other words, Chester is saying that evangelism and loving our neighbors over a meal is not complicated. Sure, it's not always easy. It takes our time. It takes planning. It takes inconvenience. It takes some risk as we invite people that you don't know to come and share your table. But one of the mission strategies that has worked through the history of the church is to love Jesus and to invite others to the meal. And it's surprising that's one of the main ways the mission of God has spread through the centuries. It's worth noting that Levi was likely known for throwing great parties. It's how he got so many people to his house to meet Jesus with such short notice. People knew that if Levi was throwing a party, that was a party they wanted to be at. And it's also worth noting that there is no indication that everyone or anyone left this particular party converted, except for Levi. There's no indication that Jesus stopped the meal for a Bible study or even an extended time of prayer. Not that that would be wrong to do, but Jesus simply enjoys the meal. He enjoys the fellowship. Surely important things were discussed and experienced, but the meal was the method It's not the only method Jesus used, to be sure, but it's an important one. And when we can engage in mission over our tables, it's a way demonstrated by Jesus that we can love and serve our friends and our neighbors. Being open and welcoming with our tables, and as people are at our table, being intentional with our questions, with our words, with our attention. The table can be an amazing long-term missional and evangelistic tool for us as we seek to share the gospel in our lives. So this morning, we see that Jesus comes to eat with us. We're about to celebrate it at this table. We 
He comes and he wants to remove our guilt and our shame. He comes to associate with us, to identify with us. And by associating with him, as we believe in him, as we share a table with him, Jesus infuses our lives with forgiveness and grace. We catch his mercy and his grace by believing in him, by being near him. Jesus's cleanliness and holiness is contagious. And he wants to give those things to us as we believe in him and share his table. The only thing you need to be invited to the table is need itself. So come to the feast. Jesus will provide the rest. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you're one who came to seek and to save the lost. Thankful that you are one who came for those who are sick, who know their need. Thankful that you are one who came eating and drinking, wanting to unite yourself to us through table fellowship. We pray this morning that you would encourage us as we come and meet you here at this table even now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.